From Innovation Alley at Marquette University, I'm Chuck Swoboda, and this is Innovators on Tap, a show based on the idea that innovation is about leadership. It's a mindset to find a better way, and ultimately, it's about people. These conversations are designed to allow you to open your mind to new ideas and find ways to put those concepts to work. Together, we can solve big problems and maybe even change the world. A Jesuit, a banker, and an author sit down for a podcast interview. No, this isn't some ridiculous setup to a joke. It's actually how I would describe today's episode. But if you're expecting three guests, I have to tell you, there's only one. His name, Chris Lowney. Chris has a unique story. He entered a Jesuit seminary after high school and spent seven years studying to become a priest, but then left the seminary and went on to an incredibly successful career as an investment banker at J.P. Morgan. And now he is a best-selling author of Heroic Leadership and other books and a world-renowned speaker. While Chris's journey may be out of the ordinary, it does embody a key trait of all innovators, the ability to take lessons from different industries and experiences and apply them in new ways to your current pursuit. We cover a wide range of topics, and Chris shares his tremendous insight on both life and some of his keys to success, including this advice. People are better than we give them credit for, and they are better than they think they are. If you give them a chance and some belief, they will outperform. Create an environment where people feel like they have a chance and know that you believe they can do it. That's what's on tap today. Enjoy. Well, Chris, welcome and thank you for joining me today on Innovators on Tap. I am really excited to have you with us. I'm a big fan of your books and have been looking forward to this conversation. Thanks. It's, uh, it's my great pleasure. I know you grew up in New York City, and I think you were attending Regis High School when you decided to enter the Jesuit Seminary. Now, I think most kids growing up are thinking, I'm going to be a doctor, lawyer, maybe a pro basketball player. You decided you're going to be a Jesuit priest. How does that decision come about? Yeah, certainly in the year 2021, it's quite a minority of folks that it would cross their mind at 17 years old to take a vow of chastity. Um, but yeah, so but it, you know, I'm from a different I'm from a different era. Um, so I went to a Jesuit high school, and you know, I could probably say in a fancy way intellectually why I made the choice. But you know, I think the bottom line and in life, a lot of times is role models. And I think especially of some of the Jesuits who taught me and probably at some level, I said, oh, you know, that's a worthy, that'd be a worthy life. And uh, so, yes, so I entered the seminary right after high school. So then I understand you spent about, I think, six or seven years in the seminary. And then you decide at some point it's not your calling. And somehow you end up going from that to working for JP Morgan as an investment banker. And I'm sure I missed a little bit of the story there. But uh, what I want to understand kind of how do you come about what seems like a pretty big pivot? Yeah. You mean that, that isn't the that isn't the logical punchline that you expect when you hear somebody's leaving a seminary that, oh, they must have gone to investment banking? I can think of a lot of things a seminarian might go do, but I'm not thinking investment banking would have made the top of my list. Yeah. So let, let me talk about it um, just a, a little bit, hopefully in a way that maybe would shed light on decision-making in general for folks, you know, because hopefully there's some relevant aspects or lessons of what I went through. So yeah, so I joined at 18. And, you know, for the majority of my time as a Jesuit, I was, I was quite happy. 
Uh, and then I kind of slowly started to become unhappy. And, you know, in life, everybody's unhappy sometimes. But, you know, at a certain point, I felt, well, you know, look, this is not normal. And maybe the first lesson learned I could take is, you know, we were here under the umbrella of Marquette a little bit. And part of the Jesuit tradition, you know, comes from St. Ignatius, the founder of the Jesuits. And, you know, I think one of his great insights is when you make decisions, especially important decisions, head and heart or soul or spirit, however you want to frame it, are, are both involved. You know, frankly, in terms of next step, most of my mental energy went into the decision to leave. And in terms of what to do next, I was teaching economics at the time in a Jesuit school. I was in New York City. There are lots of big banks. They have training programs. You know, and I think for my decision process was probably no more sophisticated than, well, you know, look, I mean, I don't have anything. I have a little bit of a qualification, maybe. Maybe I could catch on to one of these programs and then in a couple of years, my life will be do-over, so to speak. You know, I'll kind of decide what do I really want to do. And then as it turned out, I was, uh, you know, I was relatively happy at Morgan and challenged and it was interesting. So that's where I stayed. So I got to imagine that there is a bit of culture shock going from being a seminarian and studying, you know, to become a priest. And you end up in this incredibly capitalist-driven enterprise like J.P. Morgan. So I'm curious. What was that culture shock like for you and for your colleagues with you? You know, I, I guess my thoughts about that, my answers to that maybe are a little bit different than somebody might, than people might expect. To be honest, the biggest difficulty, cultural difficulty was, you know, I, I had, and maybe this is also a, a, a relevant or a lesson learned, a resonant piece of it. Uh, I, I was a street kid from Queens and those were the end of the days where a place like J.P. Morgan would have been this kind of waspy place. And I just remember feeling really out of place, a bit unconfident, a bit uncomfortable. That was a big problem for me, to tell you the truth. And then afterward, many times, you know, when I finally found my footing, you know, I would often see in more junior people, and often it, it, came, it could come along with socioeconomic class, as my issue was, could come with race, could come with gender, you know, people would all likewise feel this kind of discomfort. And, you know, I'd say to people sometimes, you know, look, I mean, I've seen you work, I could tell you, you could do the work here. But what I can't do is make you believe that yourself. And I think that's part of life, you know, we have to come to a, an apprehension that, you know, we're good, and we have something to offer and so on. You know, and the last thing I would say about it, and we might talk more about this later, depending on where you want to go, is people often assume, oh, man, you know, like you, um, you must have been like this real moral beacon in that place filled with crooks and so on. And to be honest, worked with a lot of wonderful, morally courageous people and have distinct images of being in meetings, not a lot of them, but, you know, one or two where, you know, I might have been feeling squeamish about a proposed transaction and someone else spoke up first. And then two or three other people say, oh, man, you know, I don't feel great either. And it, it made me reflect a lot. You know, I, was all, I would always be the best educated morally person in that room. But it, it really taught me, you know, that, man, you know, in life there's a lesson between, there's a difference between knowing the right thing and the courage to do the right thing. You know, I'm not, you understand, I'm not talking about like black and white, legal, illegal, massive, impropriety kinds of calls. I'm talking about these 
tinier life moments where you either go with the flow or you don't. Yeah, I think often what happens is that we look at certain types of institutions and banks have probably gotten that reputation in some cases for some of the things they have actually done over the last uh, decade. But you know, the assumption is, is everyone in them makes those decisions. And the reality is in no organization is that true, right? There's I've worked with great people across all kinds of areas. It's unfortunately, it's just a matter of if you get too many of the people who make the ultimate decision, who get misaligned, and that's typically what causes the problem. So, you know, I read something where you said that the transformation of an enterprise begins with a sense of crisis or urgency, that no institution will go through fundamental change unless it believes it is in deep trouble and needs to do something different to survive. And, you know, this is so important to uh, what I've written about and also what I've tried to help people think about that COVID in a crisis is actually a moment, right? But I'm curious, was there a, is there an example or something during your time at JP Morgan where you witnessed this firsthand or since then where you said, look, I, this is my example of what that looked like? That's a great quote. I mean, you're totally right. I use that quote a lot. I come back to it. It's from, uh, you know, um, Chuck, this great um, leader of IBM, you know, who helped resurrect and turn IBM around. And I really agree with what he says, you know, I'd say I'm a disciple of that concept. And so let me give two kinds of examples. Um, you know, one in JP Morgan life. So, uh, you know, those who know financial history know that, you know, for many decades, JP Morgan and Morgan guarantee in those times was like, you know, well here, J when JP Morgan built the building on 23 wall street, the name is not even on the door. There was kind of this arrogant sense of, you know, I mean, here's where we are and um, we don't want to do business with people who, you know, who don't, who just might walk in off the street. And that kind of characterized a little bit the culture. And for decades, people wanted to do business with JP Morgan. And then the financial markets changed dramatically. Uh, as we all know, you know, 80s, 90s, many more competitors, new products, easier to raise money, all kinds of ways. And everybody had to scramble and develop a culture that's, I don't know what, you know, more risk open, more sales oriented. And we really didn't do that very well. Part of the history of JP Morgan and eventually merging, and now it has come out as absolutely wonderful enterprise, but part of the source of why it ends up moving in the direction of merger comes from this inability to change culture. And now let me give maybe a flip side example. You know, I'm on the, the board, vice chair board of a very large hospital system. And man, what COVID, what the pandemic has done to every industry on earth, but just think of hospitals as ground zero. And for me, as a board member, it's been kind of breathtaking and awe-inspiring to see the incredible pivots that so many people did, you know, like going from uh, telehealth, virtual health is kind of a sideline, marginal thing to boom, this is what we do now. Or going from, uh, you know, we're doing all kinds of elective surgeries and other things to boom, we have to become now a, major, a main majority pandemic uh, cases, at least for a, a time being. Uh, people in technology departments who had to stand things up. People working on supply chain who had to figure out ways of getting all this PPE. And the thing that one of the things that was astounding and interesting to me is how seem effortlessly, seamlessly that came, you know, and even, you know, something like telehealth has been under debate in, in healthcare se settings for years and years, you know, yet 
now in two or three weeks, boom, this is the way we got to go. And I think it, it maybe gets back a little bit. I, I think it's an interesting case study that we might want to explore in other ways. But just to the point that you raise right now, Chuck, I think it is an example of a crisis convincing or leading people to say, okay, we have to pivot. And man, how easily it comes when people perceive that, no, this is a time where we don't have the choice to remain where we are. So crises are of all kinds, you know, like crises can be the organization's in terrible struggle, we're going to go bankrupt. Crisis can be there's some external shock to the system that will make us do things differently. You know, I, uh, I've i spent time, I was on the board at Marquette for 12 years, and I continue to do some some advisory work there. And, you know, I was talking with President Lovell, um, and I said, you know, if we would have sat down in February of this year and said, we want to put all of our courses online, because we had talked about this. By the way, when I was on the board, we talked about it for a decade. I said, you know, I remember hearing numbers that, you know, it would take us five years if, if we worked on it full time. And he said, yeah, that would have probably been our best estimate and people would have believed it. And they did it in seven days because they were either going out of business or you're going to figure it out. And, and I, I use it because I think it's just an incredible example of, you know, there's an institution, I mean, healthcare is pretty rigid. Higher ed is incredibly fixed and rigid and, uh, and people find a way. And, and one of the things I tried to tease out when I wrote my book, it was before this all happened. And I tried to, I tried to explain this idea of, can you create a crisis if you need one? And so I guess the question to you is, do you think that's a legitimate leadership tool? I mean, to create one in an organization, because I think, uh, you know, a real one is easier. People all get it. Um, creating one, I think sometimes can be more challenging, but equally as effective. Absolutely. You know, I mean, of course, uh, and I know there's not what you mean. Uh, you can't have people who are uh, manipulative and bad faith fakers, you know, like, uh, but, you know, usually if the new manager, leader, chief executive wants to engineer a very profound change, it's because he or she perceives that there is a crisis of sorts, you know, and in the case of the pandemic, one, everybody knows and sees as a crisis. And two, it's swift and immediate. But in life, organizational life, I think a lot of times the crises we deal with are the worst worst kind ultimately, namely these slowly percolating things that are going to take us under. And precisely because it's kind of slowly moving, people aren't galvanized to say we need to do something now. And so the, for the leader to you know, manufacture in the sense of trying to uh, do something to heighten our uh, perception and understanding that we have to do something. I, I think that's not only legitimate, maybe even a duty, you know? Honestly, it's a, it's a bit of what Clay Christensen was writing about when he wrote The Innovator's Dilemma, right? You have these long-standing, well-run organizations, and they can intellectually see something might be changing, but to actually create the organizational change is just so difficult. I mean, the system is designed inherently to prevent that. You're fighting the human nature that you've built into your organization and some of the core values. So it, it, to me, it's been a really interesting dynamic. I, 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 as I've told some organizations like healthcare is, you know, so what do you do when the crisis goes away to keep going? Because telehealth to me is one of the most amazing breakthroughs. It, it doesn't just create an efficiency gain, but an action 
access opportunity. I mean, literally where you live is no longer a limitation to access to the best healthcare. I happen to live in Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina, right? I can drive down the road and get pretty much whatever I need, but you could be anywhere and access those people. I just, I just think there's this amazing positive that comes out of this. Yeah. Let, let me say one or two or three things about that. I mean, first, the way you teed it up when you say you encourage those you deal with to keep going, you know, we've seen in many, many organizations, industries, and so on, this in, during the pandemic, this incredible flowering of innovation, this freedom to say, yeah, we need to do something different. But I think the challenge to all of us is when we get into the new normal, whatever that looks like, how do we hang on to this same spirit of freedom, the same imperative to innovate, this uh, same openness to trying new things that got us through the pandemic? You know, you mentioned telehealth, and yeah, I, I mean, I totally agree with you that, uh, you know, one of the things we're finding, well, we always did some telehealth because we have some big urban hospitals in Common Spirit Health. But we also have a lot of rural hospitals. And so we've been discovering, you know, you might have a hospital where there's a great doc who works there. But I mean, you can't have like 10 specialists. You know, you can't have a brain guy if there's only three beds in the hospital. So, you know, through telehealth, we're able to now bring great expertise that you couldn't have in a smaller facility. So that's one aspect of it. Another aspect of it is one of the first things we asked ourselves was, um, and always ask ourselves as you know, a faith-based provider, but I think it's good for entrepreneurs of all kinds. One of the first things we asked ourselves was, this move into technology, is it going to marginalize lower income, underserved people and communities? You know, that's a big issue for us as a system. And one of the things we're discovering is exactly the contrary. You know, that most everybody has a smartphone now. Not everybody feels comfortable to you know, hop in a fancy car and drive to a specialist office. But most people, you know, do have smartphones. Um, of course, there are bandwidth issues. I don't want to oversimplify things. But in a way, ironically, telehealth is actually, if you do it well, not going to be a marginalizing force, but a way for us to get into communities that are sort of underserved, which has always been one of our aspirations and a, and a tough nut to crack. So I want to keep going because um, as you know, I'm a fan of your books and I want to get there a little bit. So you go on to this career at JP Morgan. I think you're managing director and then you decide to retire, pivot again, and you start writing books, including heroic leadership. I guess what I'd like to do is maybe for the audience that I, I'm sure most people are familiar with your book, but just not, can you give us a little bit of a, uh, an overview of your core principles in heroic leadership, which I think are self-awareness, ingenuity, heroism, and love, and just kind of give us the thumbnail of what those are and how they, how you take these Jesuit ideas and apply it to uh, leadership. So yeah, for, heroic leadership is kind of built around four ideas. And what I was trying to do was think about the Jesuits and why they were by almost any standard you could come up with and are an amazingly successful, resilient organization and say, you know, are there ideas I could pluck that, that for them might have very deep religious or spiritual roots and pluck them out and express them in a way that folks like who worked with me at JP Morgan might appreciate, you know, some Catholics, Jewish, Muslim, people of no belief, you know, whatever. And so, as you mentioned, the four core ideas are self-awareness, ingenuity, heroism, and love. And I'll just define each in a sentence. Um, so self-awareness, the idea that especially as the world gets more volatile and confusing, 
you're not going to do well unless you have some sense of your own strengths and weaknesses, your outlook on the world, how you feel other people should be treated, and have some way of some mechanism of updating yourself every day on how that's going. So that's one idea. Ingenuity is usually the easiest for people, and in a way, that's what your your life and this cast is about. You know, it's the idea that the world is going to keep changing, and only people who have it within themselves to adapt to a changing world are going to thrive. And um, the idea of love intuitively sometimes is hardest for people, but um, what I would the way I would define it would be that you know that we look at people that we understand that every person is dignified, each person has potential. And part of my job as a manager, leader, mentor, coach is to help each person attain their potential, you know, to grow, to flourish, whatever way you want to put it. And then finally, heroism. And I, I didn't mean it in the sense of make yourself famous, rather um, to be heroic in ultimately in the sense of caring about something bigger than yourself you know, it's not about me, it's about something bigger than me. And also this kind of, I don't know what, maybe this restless energy as we're a team, a group, a company to try to understand what should we be doing? You know, is there more for us here? Is there something deeper that, that we need to be accomplishing? So those were the four ideas. So I'm curious, so let's take those four ideas. Um, you know, you've gone on and, uh, you know, in your post JP Morgan career, you know, you're now leading this hospital board, for example. Which is the hardest one to implement? Instinct is that there's not of if those of those four ideas, there's not one that's universally hardest. Rather, that maybe it it inter, there's an interplay with what is our own upbringing and history and and so on. And what I'm great at might be different than what you are great at. And therefore, by the way. You know, another lesson we all know about great teams is the people who hire all people in their own image rarely turn out to be the big winners, you know, as opposed to the people who have some sense of, oh, yeah, I'm assembling a mosaic here and I need somebody who compensates for what I don't do as well and so on. Well, that leads me to a great uh, follow-up question, which is uh, you've said that the most successful the most successful people I know are good at plan B. And when I read it, I was struck by it because, especially in my world of trying to drive innovation, I've had this philosophy that if you want to really get someone to embrace a disruptive idea and take those risks, that you need them to abandon any backup plan. They have to be prepared to go all in. And what I'm curious about is, are you using plan B in a different context or are you actually suggesting something different there? You know, and I've heard, of course, a variation of that. Like we burnt, you know, we we land on the shore and we burned our boats. Yep, <laughs> you know? exactly the same concept. Yep. Um, and so, how would I square that circle? Where maybe we could say this? You know, you're you're pointing your finger, you're putting your finger on the crucial nature of resilience, stick-to-itiveness, fire. You know, all that stuff. And yeah, I can't argue with that. But then, on the other hand, I think I want to say that um, the person who maps out a uh, route to the promised land and feels that's going to work in this crazy, volatile, very convulsive m world of markets we have in every industry. That's craziness, you know, I, I would say. And so marrying those two things together somehow. 
actually, you know, now that you've explained it, we're completely aligned. You know, it's funny. I would agree that plan A is never going to work. And probably if you're really going to pursue innovation, plan B, C, and D. In fact, I always tell people don't over plan. You want to be directionally correct and move because once you try something, you get information and you have to adjust and adapt. I mean, that's the nature of going after something new. And so it's funny, I was reacting to plan A, but I, in hindsight, I, I actually agree with your point. I mean, you want a commitment to a goal. We're going to try to solve this problem. But in no way would I suggest that you're going to know how to get there. And in fact, I give the my advice probably lines up with your point better than my own, which is I always tell people don't overplan because you're wasting your time and actually you'll set unrealistic expectations. When what I want you to do is learn and adapt and keep going. So I think we're actually much more aligned than I thought when I asked that question. All right, so. I want to switch gears here a little bit because now I want to, and you've given us some of this insight a little bit in your other answers, but I want to find out how you personally think, how would you solve or approach a problem, right? So, you know, what is the Chris Lowney approach to, you know, leadership and innovation? And I'm going to start with if you're focused specifically around building a team and you want them to be, you know, really more innovative, what do you think is more important to their success? Um, getting them to embrace a culture of brutal honesty, even if it makes people uncomfortable, or creating an environment of psychological safety where you actually adjust the conversation to you know, avoid confrontations and ensure everyone's comfortable with what's being said. My experience has been people are better, one, than we kind of give them credit for in the kind of traditional what the uh, what the annual assessment you know, says, all this nonsense. Um, people are better than that, better than they, and better than they think they are. And if you give them a chance and some belief, they're going to outperform. So I guess that's my feeling that, you know, can you create an environment that makes people feel like one, they have a chance, a shot at doing something bigger than the traditional thing. And two, that you believe they can do it. That that to me is, you know, is the right environment. So uh, I don't know if I'd exactly say psychological safety if that was the way you teed it up, but I think I'm not in the, I think I'm not, frankly, in the brutal candor camp. Um, I mean, yes, we have to be, of course, we have to be honest. Um, and yes, I get, you know, I know the idea that we kind of build a relationship of trust such that we can be brutally honest. And yeah, I mean, we do have to be honest, but I mean, I'm a bit of a conflict avoider and, you know, <laughs> Let's not be in denial or kid ourselves, but nor do I want to create a sort of a Darwinian horror show of an environment. So if you were going to describe how you approach problems, you personally, what would you say that you are more likely to try to think outside the box, to build a better box, or to just set the box on fire and try something completely different? set it on fire and have a totally new perspective, not the way I am. Yeah. But on the other hand, at, by this point in my life, I've, I've become a very deep believer that if we've got a problem, whatever approach has gotten us to this problem is not the solution. You know, so by definition, you know, I have zero problem by definition saying, no, 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 we have to throw out the conventional handbook if we're dealing with a problem. Um, chances are the conventional handbook is what got us into the problem. So when you were evaluating talent for your teams at JP Morgan, 
what were some of the must-have characteristics that you were looking for in people? Probably not in priority order, but the things that come to my mind, you got to be competent and not at a minimal level, you know, but kind of real smarts for the, for the challenge at hand to a moral compass, which would go to three um, ability to run your own show, you know, to go to really run and want to run on your own. And I think if you want to give people that freedom and you're willing to give people that freedom, then you better be confident, confident that they're going to represent the organization ethically and not get you into trouble. You know, what advice do you have for aspiring leaders? This is a question I've thought about. The last handful were ones I hadn't thought about, so they're good questions. <laughs> but this one, what I always say is, um, I feel like we have a, we've drifted into a really damaging stereotype that associates the notion of leadership only with being in charge. Like I often start out talks by saying to people, oh, think of the names of leaders. And always they, you know, what they think of is, a president, the Pope, you know, maybe Bill Gates, you know, some super executive. And then my punchline is, well, you know, who thought of their own name? You know, nobody does. But, you know, one of the definitions of leadership is to point away and influence others. And, you know, when you think of it in that core way, everybody does that, you know, all the time. You have to understand you have a leadership opportunity and responsibility now, you know, and, and not drift into this mindset of, Either, oh, you know, I think I could be a good leader 20 years from now if I get the shot, or if I were a leader, this is what I would do, or, um, man, this is a problem, uh, shrug, the people on top have to figure it out. I mean, to me, all those are really um, harmful attitudes, and, and I don't know if they're prevalent, but they're kind of widespread. You know, it's interesting, as you're saying that, I was thinking about a conversation I remember having with a a young manager who came into my office years ago and they said, look, I'd like more leadership responsibility. And I said, I can't give it to you. And they said, what do you mean? You're the CEO. I said, I can't give it to you. I said, I can give you more management responsibility, but if you want to lead, that has nothing to do with me. That has to do with you. In fact, I'll know if you're a good leader because people will start following you, right? It's how you act and it doesn't matter what level you are. And I think a few people looked at me a little kind of cross. I said, I don't get it. But most of them were kind of like, oh, it's the person in the mirror you're talking to. Yeah. I mean, it's, and, and I think it's not only, it, it's not only empowering, but also responsibility, right? You know, uh, you got to step up and do something about this stuff. You can't just sit back and wait for it to happen. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Amen. Yeah. And, you know, look, um, you know, also, I mean, part of the way I, I make the case is, you know, think about the world, the world we're living in, you know, the pace of change the level of specificity of specialization, the complexity of problems, you know, the idea that like this kind of old fashioned notion that we're going to write memos to the boss in the corner office and he or she will figure it all out. I mean, that's such a, everybody knows that's a crazy idea, but the flip side is, well, look, you know, if you think about the complexity, the volatility, the, the level of um, specialization involved in many problems, if you don't have a whole pile of people showing leadership within their authority, within their rank, no way you're going to make it. It's never, it's just not going to happen. Well, Chris, I really enjoyed this. Um, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Uh, love your writing. Um, hope you have some other interesting things coming our way in the near future. And uh, just really want to thank you for being on the show. 
Look, thanks. Thanks so much for the chance. The whole thing was fun. I enjoyed the conversation and, you know, I'm a great believer obviously in Marquette, but in what you guys are doing and your approach to innovation and so on. Well, thanks, Chris. Have a great day. All right. Blessings. Thanks to Chris Lowney for joining me on Innovators on Tap and sharing his perspective on the opportunity to be a leader every day, no matter your role. As he said, we have a dangerous stereotype where leadership means being in charge. Leadership is actually about pointing away and influencing others. You have to understand that you have a leadership opportunity and responsibility right now. I want to thank all of you who have embraced this show and helped us grow our audience so far. While we are proud of our success, we're just getting started, and I hope that you'll tell your friends about the show. We'd also really appreciate it if you'd take a minute to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Please note that we have additional resources available on our website at innovatorsontap.com. Thanks for joining us on this journey, and let's go change the world.